Welcome to Podcetera. Each episode is a journey of discovery as we delve into topics that pique our curiosity and yours. We feature in-depth interviews with fascinating individuals who have extraordinary stories to share. I'm Renee Lego. I'm Joelle Ludovich. And this is Podcetera. <laughs> Lance, welcome to Podcetera. I understand you spent some time in California, Florida, and Kentucky. Can you tell us about your family and what it was like growing up in California and Florida in the 70s and 80s, and also spending summers in eastern Kentucky? That's quite a mix. It's turned out to be really awesome in my life. A couple of years ago, I wrote during the pandemic about the blessings and curses of my duality. So I'm half black and half white. My dad's from Washington, D.C., and my mother is from a town called Whitesburg, Kentucky, which is right in Appalachia, closer to Virginia and Tennessee than most other Kentucky cities. My parents met in Lexington, Kentucky, when my dad was doing training for IBM, and she basically ran away with him to Southern California. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, he was training in Southern and now moved up to Sacramento. I was born there. Lots of family controversy on my mom's side. Being from a very small town, my uh, great-grandfather was a very progressive man, and he basically told my mom's family, hey, you're either going to accept Lizzie, that's my mom, or you're not, but I'm going to, and you all could be out. And when my grandparents met me as a baby, everything changed. So I've had duality of being loved and not knowing all the story about the family itself. And I only learned a lot of it in the last couple of years as my parents were getting older. Growing up in Sacramento was interesting because also somewhat progressive, but more rural than I thought. There were a lot of times when my dad would take me fishing or something like that and uh, just tell me, get on your bike and keep riding until you get to the car and I'll catch up with you later. And you know, later on, I found out that somebody was harassing him over my dad's very, very dark. I'm very light. You know, and I dealt with things like I didn't look like anybody else. I had really curly hair when I was young and, you know, big nose, but I was white and people were very confused by that. And I got picked on the way kids pick on people. We moved to Florida. My dad got transferred. And then that was cocaine cowboy era. Very different sets of family values, if you can call it that. And I had to grow up really quickly. My parents got divorced. They started it when I was 16 or 17. And that lasted like five years. But that growing up was also one of those blessings and curses because I had to find ways to, if not integrate, at least understand and be patient with people. That influenced my entire life. And today it seems more relevant than ever. And then my mom was from Eastern Kentucky. And so we would leave for a month at a time up until I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I got to spend all this time with people much older than I mostly my grandfather's friends and doctors and things like that. I played golf every day of the, of the month. Uh, and again, people would be very nice to me, but then I would see odd behaviors at times. And there were many times when my grandfather would swoop me up and say, we're going home. What odd behaviors? What do you mean? You know, someone would probably say things, use words that I don't use today. A lot of people would assume that I was white and start talking about, you know, if someone else of color was in the room or I learned to be tolerant of people who I wasn't going to agree with. That's also hard because you don't understand when you're young why people are behaving the way they do. And 
And because my parents worked really hard to make me know that I was loved, you know, when I went out into the real world on my own, I, I'd get very confused how someone might talk to me or how someone who I thought was very, you know, smart and, and thoughtful would turn out to be not very thoughtful. And, and in a way you could argue, you know, how smart is it when you are prejudiced against someone because of their background or because of their color or because of their socioeconomic level? You know, my mom's grandmother lived next to a house that you could literally see through. It was planks and posts. And that also taught me a lot about tolerance and forgiveness and empathy. I went to school at USC and then went back and worked for two and a half years because my grandfather passed away. That was a really insightful time because I was kind of out on my own at times and running into people who I'd known all my life and seeing them differently or seeing that they hadn't evolved. I've now just been bi-coastal and monocoastal and traveling around. I, I still have a place in South Florida. I'm mostly in Los Angeles. I try to travel and learn as much as I can about the United States and why we're the way we are and how we can be better. Did your parents ever talk to you about how hard it was for them being an interracial couple or did they shield you from that? They largely shielded me from it. I have this this saying, you know, break the cycle. And, and my parents and my grandparents decided to do that. And I think the experiment worked pretty well. It kept me being a very idealistic person. I think that's a very good thing, but it's also hard, right? It, you constantly spend your whole life realizing that not everyone sees things the way you see them. And I don't mean like see it the way I see it only, but just being open-minded and just seeking to understand other people, but also in reality, seeking to understand yourself. A lot of times now I'll talk to, you know, my peers and friends and family friends, and they've made decisions about their lives or they're still making decisions about their lives because of the way that their family thought or the way that their community thinks. And, you know, when you travel, obviously you, you realize like there's no one way to go about life. I'll get into arguments with someone about religion or something like that. And I'll say, well, let me just give you an example. In America, we love our cows, but we eat them. And if you go to India, they're revered. So is one of us wrong? Or is it at least that you have some other place you could go and live the life that you want to live? I like the idea of bringing that and integrating it as much as possible. But, you know, hey, you have a choice. You could go somewhere else and not be miserable or not make other people miserable. Do you have any siblings? I'm an only child of an only child on my mom's side, and my dad was basically raised as an only child. Okay. So you're really going through everything without real support of a sister or brother or someone that you could really talk to. Yeah, you know, same blessing and curse thing. One is you don't have peers within the family necessarily. And two, you get exposed to adult situations much earlier. We went to parties sometimes and, and they would just say, you know, Lance is going to behave and you sit over there. How did you grapple with the question that you probably got a lot? What are you? How did you grapple with that? So when I was really young, I had a big golden fro and people would come up and ask me, and here's what I heard, is that permanent? And I would say, yes. And then I realized later on that they were asking me if it was a permanent, if I was having my hair curl. <laughs> Not, is it going to last forever? Of course, this is what I got, um, right? You know, until later on when I got it really, really short. When I got older, yeah, people would ask. And I always default to saying that I'm 
flat because then it opens up, okay, you can elaborate on it or they just kind of shake their head and walk away, right? And I explained, you know, my mom being from Eastern Kentucky, which is kind of interesting, you know, and my dad being from DC, I get this kind of fascinating, you know, blending where a lot of people say, oh, you don't look black at all. And then I show them a picture of my dad and we have almost exactly the same face. It's just my dad's browner and, you know, he has the tight black curly hair. We have the same smile, the same forehead, the same behavior, demeanor, and things like that. But then you see my mom and you go, oh, okay, I see that. I kind of got half the height. I got the lighter hair. My torso is more my grandfather's on my mom's side. It's funny. Someone walked up at my grandmother's services last week and said, do you look exactly like Raymond, who is my grandfather on my mom's side? Then my grandmother on my dad's side would always say, you look exactly like your dad. I'm going to dig in just a little bit to why as humans do we have this need to define? Why do we do this? I need to know who you are. I need to know where you are in comparison to me. I am not saying you have the answer for this. I just, I ponder this sometimes myself. I think if you told me you were this and that, and you were from here and there, and your parents were of all these different backgrounds, I would be like, wow, this is really interesting. Tell me about it. I'd be more bought in, right? I mean, I think that's such a great question. And I do think about it too. You know, we start with whatever family and community we're in, and we can be guilty of assuming that until proven otherwise, everyone else is like us, right? Then you get outside of that or, you know, now we have television, things like that. But I even think that's interesting. Like somehow people think TV is both real and completely on some other planet. I think it starts with, until you really like open your mind up, I think it starts with just wanting to understand, right? We have this desire to understand and understand by definition as opposed to understanding by allowing. It can be a, like a conversation starter when you travel. Hey, where are you from? Or something like that. But the more interesting part of that is not just saying, hey, you're from Austin. Hey, you're from India. Hey, you're from Nigeria. And thinking that you know what that means. To your point, the much more interesting thing is fine, start with that. And then tell me what's interesting about your town, right? Or, or how did you get here from there? Or, you know, or things like that become much more interesting. And because very few people have lived completely a linear life and a completely predictable life. And, and if you think that's the case, then I would argue like there's no reason that we have, I don't know how many billion people on this earth. Even if you live in the same town, you've lived a very different life. I think if you're willing to like get introspective and think about that, then you become much more curious in much broader ways about people and such an exciting way to live. But it also takes some constitution, right? You kind of have to be okay with yourself to be okay with other people. One half of your DNA doesn't define you or a quarter of your DNA, right? Or like you said, one place that you lived or one job that you worked. I'm going to go back to your parents because when you told me they got married in 1968, I thought of the Loving Case. The Loving Case was in 67. Yes. It was in 67. So for those listening, because we may someday, Joel, have international listeners or people who don't remember loving. So I'm going to read and not for us necessarily, but for the people listening. So well, if I may, before you do, you know, that's another example, too. Of I live my life a, a certain way because these are the things I know. And there's certain things that I don't question 
until someone asked me. And I loved it when you brought it up. Like, wow, I, I don't know the answer to that. So yeah, let's, let's hear it. All right. In 1967, Mildred Dolores Loving and Richard Perry Loving were an American married couple who were the plaintiffs in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case Loving v. Virginia, 1967. The Lovings were criminally charged with interracial marriage under the Virginia statute banning such marriages and were forced to leave the state to avoid being jailed. They moved to Washington, D.C., but wanted to return to their hometown. With the help of the ACLU, they filed suit to overturn the law. In 1967, the Supreme Court ruled in their favor, striking down the Virginia statute, and subsequently, all state laws as unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment, which covers citizenship rights and equal protection under the law, which allowed your parents to get married legally in the state of Nevada, in 1968. I want to follow it up because I was doing even further research. I read this to Daniel, my husband, this morning, and it was really touching. It is even more touching today, in 2023, after the last couple years of politics, than it was when it was written. This is Mildred in 2007, on the 40th anniversary of that ruling. Surrounded as I am now by wonderful children and grandchildren, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of Richard, our love, our right to marry, and how much it meant to me to have the freedom to marry the person precious to me, even if others thought it was the wrong kind of person for me to marry. I believe all Americans, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, should have the same freedom to marry. Government has no business imposing some people's religious beliefs over others, especially if it denies people's civil rights. I am not a political person, but I am proud that Richard's love and my name is on a court case that can still help reinforce the love, the commitment, the fairness, and the family that so many people, black or white, young or old, gay or straight, seek in life. I support the freedom to marry for all. And that's what loving and loving are all about. That's gorgeous. I'm going to follow up with a really heavy question. And sorry for all the reading, but I really was like really touched by it, especially knowing what's happening right now in, in the political climate and what happened with Roe v. Wade. Is something like loving the Virginia possibly a target? It could be. I don't think we can take anything for granted anymore. America was on a course that seemed ever more free, ever more progressive, not in the political sense, but in the sense of, hey, we've learned something else. How do we, how do we expand this, this positive effect? You know, if, I have friends who have kids that are in their late teens and early 20s, and they do not talk about race and sexuality like we do. My best friend, who's also from Whitesburg, lives in Chicago now. And she was taking her son and his girlfriend at the time, this was a couple of years ago, to Whitesburg. And she was trying to prepare them because she was Mexican-American. And, and her son finally looked at her and said, I don't understand what you're talking about. Like, I don't think of her that way. She's just, you know, whatever her name was. I'm hopeful that that generation, even if we continue to complicate things and go backwards, I think they'll overturn all of this if it gets overturned. But in the interim, you know, we are back to being fearful of each other. Anger to me is just a different 
symptom of grief. Let that bounce around in your head, right? Because crying is easy, right? And, you know, my grandmother just passed away. She was 100. I've wept a couple of times. And when my dad died, I was angry. But now I look at it and I go, there's nothing to be angry about here. You know, she lived a life and she died, which we're all going to do. And this isn't about like she was taken away from me. And so that takes us back to this topic, right? So much of these battles are about not even what the original racism or misogyny was about. Now it's about stuff. We want to take away your ability to get stuff, right? Before it was like a maybe a legitimate hatred of the misunderstood black person or the misunderstood gay person. And now we we argue on this basis that well, if they get if they're allowed to get married, then they get the same rights to tax, you know, credits and healthcare as I do. And we can't afford that. And I think the thing that they're fighting about isn't isn't what they're fighting about. And they don't even understand the repercussions. Gay people have been in this world probably as long as straight people. And just because your religion deemed that it was wrong or that it scares you because maybe you're actually gay doesn't mean that you should take away someone's like freedom to just love who they love because gosh, you know, every situation we're in is better if people are just loving who they love. But we have to be vigilant now. We have to watch. I mean, you're totally right, Renee. We, we have to watch what's going on because it doesn't take a lot of people to change life for a lot of people. It just takes somebody who is making the effort. And the optimistic side is equally, we need to be advocating for more fairness and not less. What's your real end game? How do you see this working if suddenly you can't yeah, marry who you want to marry? You've taken away women's productive rights. Men don't understand women. I love you all. And my mom and my grandmother were my queens. My mom is still around and you know she, she assumed that the scepter I'm not going to pretend to understand her at all. We're simple. Guys are simple. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I remember when a lot of this was going on with abortion, taking away the rights and stuff in the street court. There were like sort of memes going around about Clarence Thomas and his wife. His wife is white. And they're like, better be careful how far back you go because you're going to be like, I mean, it's just. A little crazy to think about sometimes they're hypocrites i think don't look at what i'm i am but let's just make everyone else fearful of everyone and that's where i think people can start to be controlled right no you're totally right i mean and and fearful if you keep people afraid and fearful you can control them that's kind of like what i think isn't that what the last five years is how many years now seven years has been about sort of um I can't think of the word right now, but like this, not attack, but this kind of like disruption. Let's disrupt as many people as we can. And then this way, those folks, you know, try to gain power that way. It seems to jump. We go to abortion, to drag queens, to books, to what do you think that's about? There's one thing after another. I have my theory, but I'm interested to see what you think. If you want to talk politics, I don't know. Maybe you don't. I don't watch the news very much anymore, you know, and every once in a while somebody will turn it on or, and I go, oh, that's why I don't, I don't watch it because what's shown is this little bite that is true sometimes that makes you think, oh my God, the entire world is burning right now, right? Like I can't go outside. The important part of it is you do have to pay attention because there's someone who has an agenda and that's how they function. 
and I believe quite often coming from a place of fear, right? Fear of lack of resources, fear of opportunity, fear of not having enough of money, not having the most money and things like that. There are people out there on both sides who have a list written or in their head of things that should be the way that they think they should be. There's definitely the concern for power and money is power. Giving someone, other people, the idea that you can save them is power or that you're the only person or a group of people that can protect them is power. It's a fearful thing. You're afraid of what someone else would do if they had the power and you don't have it. And we have these bad habits in civilization where a group who was oppressed becomes the oppressor. I've developed this skill, you know, in party situations or in a bar or something where somebody will come at me when they find out what I do in terms of homeless policy and things like that, or I talk about race or something. And I find the place within them where we're, we have a similar experience, be it having someone in the family who has some sort of mental or emotional disability or something like that, or someone who the family knew was gay, but protected it and kind of isolated them. And it's in every family. And when you find that space, then it changes the entire tone of the dialogue, right? It becomes really hard to hate someone. And to want to spend your precious energy on affecting them in a negative way. These are very like more Eastern religion, Eastern philosophy, but, but you know, gosh, there's a reason they've been around for thousands of years. I had a great conversation with a friend's 15 year old son, very, very religious, very Catholic. And the kid was smart. He knew the Bible, knew the Bible really well, but it went from him preaching at all of us to me and him having a dialogue about how life really works. I love that he was into it and I love that he was passionate. I know my mom was fearing that I was going to like upset his parents because I'm not a religious person, but I'm spiritual. And by the end of it, we made this deal with each other. He said, you've read the Bible. I said, yeah, I went to Catholic school. I'm not Catholic, but I read it. And I said, I haven't read it in a long time. He said, you read Job and I will read the Tao Te Ching and we'll talk again. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. How did growing up biracial inform your work advocacy and your worldview? Um, it's seeing people and what they might be going through or what they might have gone through that answers questions that are beyond what you're taught in architecture school. Design is not just taking this lovely teak or deciding how many drawers. It's also understanding how a person embraces the things that are important to them. It's understanding that people from a certain community think that being outside at night is a nice thing, or it's an essential thing. You know, if you live in a, in an apartment and you live with your grandmother and your mom and your three brothers and two sisters, you don't sit in the living room <laughs> at night, right? You go outside and that outside is an extension of your living room. There are people who think that that's the behavior of, you know, a lesser type of person or, or they just don't get it. And they think, oh, well, what I need to do is, you know, make a bigger bedroom. Like, no, this community functions a different way. And so I'm always looking at how people live and why they live a certain way. And then also saying to them, when I get the chance to talk to them, there are other ways to go about your life. There are other ways to do this. Do you like how you live? 
or would you like to do this if you had the opportunity? And I think that that's highly rewarding. It's, you know, it's much more challenging. Again, there's no book, but there have been some cool times, you know, where especially doing housing for former homeless, you know, former chronically homeless, where you meet someone who never had their own space and to just give them a special place to sit or window seat or, you know, the right to choose their own color for their shower curtain, believe it or not. You know, or giving them something that's really bold and letting them say like, oh my God, I never knew I can have green. Amazing. And, and you just keep learning. Like that's the awesome thing too, is, you know, it forces you to keep learning when you know, I know I do not know all the answers. I fight a lot for, for people who don't have a voice. We do a lot of consulting work. So we may not actually be the architects, but we'll consult on projects like a community center that has a very limited budget. And I'll get someone who says, well, we're only going to paint it one color. And I'm like, no, look at the people who live in the building. You know, you have to give them something interesting. You have to give them at least something more. And, you know, I win more of those battles than I lose these days because it isn't about me in that design solution, right? It's about me understanding what we're designing. What inspired you to choose a career in architecture? I was born with this heightened sensitivity to light and space and sounds. It's kind of one of those things that maybe could have been really bad. Growing up in a place where I could become an architect was one thing. I got to fly a lot when I was young. So I would see cities and towns and nature. And then my parents would, the only way they could get me to agree to go to the California State Fair was I was obsessed with the architectural models that I guess college students or something would make. And so you see it in the plane, you see the little thing, and then you can imagine, you know, as a kid, you, you create your dream spaces in your head. And then later on, finding out how much more impactful it could be than just the object. And it really is about those spaces. You know, it's like the space between notes and music. The space is nothing and it's everything about an architectural experience. So I did some research, more research, after we talked. So according to the NCARB, is that the board you're on? That's the registration board, yeah. And in 2019, just over 11% of architects in the U.S. identified as racial or ethnic minority. Why is diversity and inclusion important? For many of the reasons that I became one and because of what I find satisfying, I mean, there are so many challenges to creating, you know, a safe and satisfying and hopefully inspirational home and community and culture and nation. And the idea that a very small group of people who, for the most part, live the same way dictates that is it's silly. You had to have the money to go to not only go to college, but then to go through architecture school, which costs, gosh, I don't know now. I mean, it cost me probably another $40,000 for materials and touring and, you know, seeing buildings and buying a computer. And for the longest time, it was a rich man's profession. And it's still a profession that costs more than many other professions. Probably medical school, the most expensive. But we need diverse inputs. We need people coming from different socioeconomic levels and different, you know, orientations and different ways of loving and different ways of living because there's not one way. And even within a single community, there's not one way. And the more people that 
can contribute, the better. I mean, it's, it's my argument why keeping women out of the workforce or, you know, controlling how they play a role, it's sad. I mean, if America is great, you know, let's go ahead and say that we are great with 51% of the population, or let's just say 50% of the population having all the influence. Imagine how great we'd be if the other 50% also contributed with all the talent that they have. Gosh, if only 89% is controlling it, or 89% out of it, imagine how much more amazing architecture we would create. How do you encourage more diversity? One is letting people know that they can try. It's amazing. Like I do crits, critiques at some of the community colleges, USC and UCLA and, and some big schools, but I go to the community colleges and I'm reminded every single time because I see such a range. Like at USC and UCLA, the quality of the projects, even as freshmen, is pretty consistent. These are, USC is very diverse. I think 147 countries are represented there. But the kids are kind of similar. And you go to community colleges and you'll see one young student who totally understands what the project was and another student who simply proposed a multicolored sail cover. And they obsessed just as long as the other student did. But you realize, like, that's architecture to them. You know, they have a stucco box house and the fun space for them is outdoor on the patio. And they haven't been exposed to all the other ways of architecture and all the other solutions. So one is getting them there. And the second is exposing them. I always invite the students to reach out to me. You know, I'm happy to, to get a group together and take them someplace. Or at the very least, I just point out things that they maybe didn't know they could go see. You know, museums are a great example. Museums are so daunting, right? And they charge a fee to get in, but they don't tell you that you can go for free to almost any museum. It's just a suggested contribution, right? But people go, oh my gosh, no, I, I don't go there. I can't, I'm not invited there. Retail is important. It's an important part of our community and people won't go to a certain mall or store because they don't think that their people go there. So there's a lot of advocacy I do, invite, like I said, inviting them, pointing them out. And also letting them know that if they run into an obstruction or oppression or are suppressed, that they can come to me. You know, I'm a big advocate in my office. We fluctuate. We're very diverse. My business partner is the only Anglo-Saxon male in the office. We fluctuate with the number of women. And right now we're low. And someone came to me recently and she said, hey, can our next project manager candidate be a woman? And I looked and I said, wow, you're right. You don't have any architects right now who you can go talk to who are like you. We have women in, you know, our bookkeeping and accounting, and we've had female project managers, but right now she doesn't have an avenue. And so I said, you know, we'll definitely work on that. And at the same time, come talk to me and I'm happy to introduce you to some female friends of mine in the profession who would definitely take you under their way. And that's important. Every job we get into is daunting when you don't have people who you feel like you can talk to. What led you to work in Kentucky, and can you tell us about your time there, and how did that inform your work and your advocacy? My grandmother had known this family, the Richardsons, for a long time, I think, I think since they moved in. And I met this gentleman who's my friend and mentor still, Bill Richardson, who had come to Kentucky during the war on poverty, and 
my romantic version of it is he and his wife were instrumental in bringing the first modern film technology in. And so they created this organization with some other people called Apple Shot. And uh, it exists today. It's theater, radio, visual arts, and performing arts. And they even do some film production. And it's why I kept going to the town. There are a lot of small towns where I don't think when I was in my teens, I would have agreed to keep going back with my mom, but I could get out of the house and go meet these amazing performers. And they always had people from around the world traveling through. My grandmother took me down to meet Bill Richardson. And again, I'd been to Apple Shop many times, but didn't know him that way. He had just come back from Los Angeles with his family. And so, you know, I was at USC and we were geeking out over all the cool buildings that they had seen. And he said, do you have some free time? Do you, would you like to work a little while you're here? And it was a short trip. And I said, sure. And so he sent me over to this park and they were building a, a water plant, very small one with some facilities for the park. I drew something up and they built it. He said, I know you'll never come back here to work, but you know, if you do, you have a job. And I came back and I knew I'd be a workaholic. So I went back to see my grandparents the following summer and my grandfather passed away and I ended up staying there to take care of my grandmother for a while. And I got to work on projects that range from doing the, I think it was the third or fourth iteration of the county courthouse, which happened to be across the street from our office. So that was exciting. And I got to meet with the county judge executive. And again, things that I wouldn't have gotten to do as a 22 year old. We did a couple of affordable housing projects in surrounding towns. And this is another one of those biracial things. Everyone knows the, you know, plight of the inner city minority, but I also know the plight of the white rural American. The coal companies started leaving decades ago and they were left with a lot of false promises. I mean, they'd been taken, they both benefited and got taken advantage of by these companies, right? They built these towns. There was great wealth for many decades. And then as the coal companies left, they were left with very little. And so there's, you know, a handful of people who own most of the property and own, you know, the businesses and a lot of people who are deeply, deeply impoverished, undereducated, given false hope. What does this sound like? It sounds like what, you know, Southside Chicago, right? But these are white people. And so there's, again, that I have no choice, but to seek to understand and to be empathetic and to try to help people who maybe don't have the voice or who, who are stuck with a voice that isn't going to benefit them the way they think anymore. You have a lot of passions. I do. A lot of passion projects, including designing to improve communities and aiding the chronically homeless and mentally ill. Why are those projects important to you, especially mentally ill and homeless? There's a couple of components to it. One is this country has never been wealthier. And LA is such a great place to be able to make that statement. We've never been wealthier as a whole, right? We're building massive buildings. We're building beautiful places that everyone can go to. And, you know, we have beautiful cars and, you know, all of these great natural resources that, again, people sometimes don't realize. I mean, I go running. I can see downtown Los Angeles and I can see Santa Monica Bay from the top of this mountain that I run to. And I think sometimes, and I actually get like, I get worked up about it. You know, I think sometimes, wow, there's all these people, millions of people who think that they're stuck and they can come here for free. And I'm always thinking about how can I, you know, ideally help that person help themselves. Our job is to take care of it. Our job as a society 
when we have great wealth and freedom is to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. More so to take care of people who we took away their ability to take care of themselves, which we could talk about what your research is with Reagan. And I feel like every person has been put on this earth with a certain set of talents and all we have to do is find the right place for them. Everyone has a gift to give back. It doesn't make any sense to me. And again, I'm not religious. It doesn't make any sense to me that there would be someone who is put on this earth to not be, and, and I don't mean useful in the way of, you know, you must produce a product, but somehow contribute to how this whole system works, this whole system of, of living and trying to get by and living life to its fullest. And so that is very much an influence. What setting can I create for someone to help them thrive? What do you think uh, is at the heart of the chronic homeless problem in the U.S.? It's a big question, and, and it's kind of a dangerous one when you can't cover all the bases of it. But we know that in certain places that it was created in some ways out of a political, socioeconomic decision. Again, you know, we'll get to that Reagan research that you did, because I'd like to speak with more facts. We have major events that happen. This is not exclusive to America. I mean, there are other countries that have it far worse than we do. We have those major events that happen where sometimes a large segment of the community benefits and another segment of the community gets forgotten. So, you know, for example, World War II dramatically changed how we built in America, right? And we found a way to build rapidly and we created these suburbs that did lots of great things. They also did lots of bad things for the environment and they created these insular communities where misogyny and things got to grow under the guise of, you know, the nuclear family and such. But in this contemporary situation, we now have the veterans coming back from the Gulf War and the related wars. And that was a keeping the wars going in some respect was also a good way to keep the unemployment levels low for one of the administrations. But these veterans come back and so much has changed from when they left. It's like they come to a different world. You have veterans that left before you dated online. There were promises made, too, to these veterans that they would be taken care of. When I found out that when you're honorably discharged, it's the same as being released from prison. Whatever you manage to save and whatever personal effects you have, thanks a lot, good luck. Here's the address for the VA hospital. And if you're not taught how to work the system of benefits, Good luck. But we sent you to this country or these countries that even unlike World War II, a lot of the people looked like you, right? There are similarities. I mean, you know, my grandfather was from Eastern Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky looks a lot like outside of Geneva, Switzerland. And it looks a lot like France in the rural portions. So it wasn't as distinct. And then you go to the Middle East and the people do look different and they do live differently if you're outside of the cities. I was shocked when I found out that, you know, Beirut looked way more like America, but they never showed us those images, right? The idea was that everybody lived out in the desert or something like that. They're using, you know, much more massively violent weapons. And, and this isn't something new, but the reliance upon drugs instead of therapy is coming back to like homelessness solutions. I think the government in a way has almost done as much as we should 
expect them to. And we have to have the private sector be accountable. Doctors who are violating their basic principles and allowing people to automatically refill drugs and not coming back in for a session is abhorrent. And we also have the real estate industry, which I obviously my business relies on it, being gatekeepers and expecting the government to magically solve problems that they're also a part of, right? I own property. So I'd love my property to, you know, always go up in value. But there's a there's also this reality like there's not a housing shortage in Los Angeles. There's an affordability shortage. There's this illusion that just because the house down the street from yours sold for a million dollars, your house is worth a million dollars. And there's so much money out there, I'm not against it, that can sit on vacant buildings, waiting for the biggest payout, while at the same time complaining about the homeless people that are in, in the front yard or down the street. And you go, hey, you could be part of the solution here. And maybe it's not going to be your maximum payout, but What's the cost of, you know, Renee, you, you and I have talked about this too. I love this like thought exercise and you can use it for anything, Joel. For me, it first came with what's the real cost of war? You know, we all know bombs and tanks, combat pay, maybe rebuilding a town, but what's the cost of those veterans who did things that they're not willing to come back and talk to anyone about? Instead, they tear themselves up inside. And then what's the cost of the people who they injured and still survive. We pay for that one way or another. We either pay for it by taking care of them or we pay for it by not taking care of them. To say, okay, what are the opportunities to solve these problems? So I started digging on the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill. And it actually started in the 1960s. That was the first wave. The second resulted in fewer prison inmates, and it caused significant increases in homelessness and untreated mental illness. And we can thank Ronald Reagan and Jerry Brown in California in the 80s. And unlike the rest of the U.S., where homelessness is flattened, California's homelessness has spiked in 2015 due to jails and prisons emptying. Approximately a quarter of all people experiencing homelessness in this country reside in California. And you're right. Homelessness is not always a choice. You know, you and I have talked about this. There are people who are choosing to live in their car. They can't pay $3,000 to work in New York City. So are they homeless? Well, by definition, yes. Would they say they're homeless? Okay, they're not living on Skid Row. But that's a homeless problem. Yes, you're saying an affordability problem. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk about that story that you told me before about the woman with dyslexia. When my business partner and I, we met in architecture school, when we started our partnership, we had gone separate directions. He had been doing affordable housing really since we were at college working for someone. And I'd gone the other route. I was doing basketball arenas, and high rises and million dollar condo interiors and things like that. Kind of, you know, obviously they lost a little bit of my social awareness doing all the fun, sexy stuff. And we were working on the, a big project together. And he said, hey, I have this client who has this annual dinner. Since you're in town, why don't you go to it? See what it's about. And I was always like, oh yeah, good. You know, I'm glad you do affordable housing, things like that. We went to this client's dinner and a lot of these nonprofit developers and property managers do these. But this one 
honors a resident of the year and it shattered what my perception of homelessness and how free to become homeless was. So she gets up and says that she had lived on the street for 25 years because her parents had kicked her out of the house because they thought she was lazy and they didn't know that she was just dyslexic. And so she lived on the streets, you know, surviving however she could survive and a social worker engaged her and almost immediately diagnosed her with dyslexia. And she ended up going to college and graduating with honors. And she now is, I can't remember what her profession was, but she also is a, is an advocate in uh, affordable housing projects for helping people get diagnosed and also exposing them to the opportunities to go to college. I break down crying every single year because every single year it's a different story that you and I couldn't even imagine. The number of times that kids run away from foster homes because they're abused is disturbing. Absolutely disturbing. Other stories are their parents died in a car crash and they didn't have any family. Other common ones are the boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife left, you know, ran up all their credit cards and things like that. And they were the co-signers or they were the, you know, the signatories on the cards. And so they ended up homeless. It's wives and spouses of veterans. It's veterans who come back and they just can't, they're not given the reintegration process. And, and so those are quite often the ones that are most likely to say that they'd rather live outside. You know, let's be honest about it. If you think that's your only option, there's something not okay, right? You know, a lot of people like to come to me and say, oh, well, they, they choose to. I'm like, listen, no, nobody chooses to live on the streets of Los Angeles. It's a different thing if you said you wanted to live in like Montana. No one chooses to live on the streets of Los Angeles in a way that that actually is their end game, right? It may be better the environment that they were in, but that's not a rational end game that anyone is going to have. I feel like we lost our empathy for the plight of the homeless. So what would you say to someone to convince them to help some of the homeless people or homeless people in general? One strategy I use is to tap into someone's own family or friend history. I have yet to run into someone where I couldn't find some place where they knew someone that immediately made them be more open to the plight of someone similar, right? So it could be the kid that just didn't do well in school that's in their family. And again, you know, you've got these families that kind of protect it. You know? <laughs> they isolate it, but they don't see it the same because it's so close to them. There's the part where you say, well, you're fortunate because you have a family that has the resources or the awareness or both to do that. But there are people who don't have that family. I have some acquaintances who live on Skid Row, and so many of them are disconnected from family, whether it's their parents or their kids. Series of bad decisions, or they had another family argument, and they ran away. They left. They, you know, adults left. Either they're ashamed to contact their family, or there's you know some other regular family behavior thing, and they don't know a path back. The homeless communities, and it's not one actually tend to look out for themselves and there's you know there's abuse within it don't get me wrong like there's there are people who have figured out how to be hustlers and there are the drug dealers who have found another market but they actually tend to 
build their own community and look out for each other. But it also means this is the only strategy they have. And, you know, a, a bigger thing for me has also been like in terms of planning policy, you probably know about Cabrini Green and Chicago and things like that. And, and the idea was, oh, it's these high rises that were bad and it's why the people remain poor. And, you know, the reality is that while they were tearing down Cabrini Green, the wealthy started building high rise condos in Chicago. So it's not the high rise that was bad. It was the lack of programming and services. Right. And it's the idea that if you put a lot of poor people together, they will remain poor. If you put a lot of wealthy people together, they will get wealthier. For example, when I lived in Boca Raton, Florida, I started a car detailing business and I could charge 25 bucks to wash a person's car, 100 bucks to detail it. I added on window tinting. All of my friends and their parents had cars, right? My mom worked for a developer, so I was washing Mercedes and Porsches and getting tipped and things like that. And I had friends who lived across the canal in Deerfield Beach whose dads didn't have jobs and they didn't have friends who had cars. So we were kind of poor in Boca. My opportunity was, you know, I could make a couple hundred dollars a weekend. I had friends who there weren't jobs right across the canal, literally across the canal. You could drive down Federal Highway and jobs here, no jobs there. I knew that I could go to Deerfield and get a job if there was one, but people in Deerfield may not necessarily know because their community has a set of information and access to information and opportunity and expectations, right? Expectations are also important. They can be good and they can be bad of what can be accomplished. California's dilemma, going back to that fact, is not only do we have the services that attract people who find out that there's services, we also were a sanctuary. We're allowing Texas to bust people in. And a lot of small towns do that. You know, like this is a fact. People thought it was not true. It's a fact that there are smaller towns and communities who do not have the resources and someone will be in front of a judge and they'll say, third strike, you're out. I can put you in jail or I can give you a bus pass to go to Los Angeles. So, wow. Thank you. That's a lot of uh, areas we covered in this conversation. So very interesting. We have some speed round questions for you. So you ready for the speed round? I'm ready. All right. So first question is, what building do you wish you designed? I would say Bill Bow, the museum that Frank Derry did in Bill Bow. Oh, yeah. That has so many connections. That's a good one. I haven't been there. I have friends that come back and they're like, it's everything people say it is. If you could solve one world problem, what would you solve? I would end war. What's the, the one thing you don't feel guilty spending money on? One thing. Travel. It's my absolute delight. It's ecstasy. And I don't even care where I go. What's the most spontaneous thing you've done in your life? One time saying in public to uh, win the heart of a woman. Besame mucho. And was there a large public audience? About 30 or 40 people. It was in a bar in uh, Miami Beach. Is there video? Fortunately, no. What is the Guinness World Book of Records record you'd like to break? That's a great question. You know, one part of me wants to say something like, you know, very impactful and say, uh, you know, I'd love to... Uh, house as many people in the shortest amount of time possible. But the more crazy one would probably be like fastest trail run at Chamonix. 
in uh, France. Like I'm obsessed with Chamonix now. I got to ski there and I want to run it now. I geek out watching YouTube videos of people running. The Summer Olympics are coming to France. I know. I see a trip coming with all of us. <laughs> we have a segment. It's called Whisper Down the Lane. Do you remember that game where you used to tell somebody something and then they would tell somebody something and then they would tell somebody something and it would go around the room? We do a segment where we ask our guest to give us a question and then we give that question to the next guest. And that question is, you're 95 years old and you're looking back on your life. What is the one thing that you look back on and you don't regret? I don't regret telling my male friends that I love them. That's a great answer. I like that. And that is our question down the lane. Thank you for joining us on Podcetera. And would you mind telling the audience where they can reach you and what's next for Lance? I'm going to be crazy. I will put my email out there. PhoenixFTA at gmail.com. About like the bird on socials as Sir Lance Simon on Instagram, Lance.Simon1 on Facebook. I am doing all sorts of initiatives now. I've started a blue sky research department in my architecture business. We did some work last summer with the flooding in Eastern Kentucky and integrating GIS and I call it information arbitrage. So using some building techniques that we use here that can be used in Kentucky. I am co-producing a short animation that I love with uh, my ex-girlfriend, Marita. It's going to be a brilliant piece of work. It's her and a female animator, and I'm kind of just the background. I want it to be a woman-forward project. And I am launching a website for my photographs this week. The website is going to be called Out of the Ashes. It's why my company is called Phoenix. I used to burn myself down every time my heart was broken or I life got out of control. This one coming out of the ashes was so beautiful and this trail running and these photographs. It's out of the ashes.com. And then the film project is called Code of the Heart. Thank you. It was nice to meet you. And thank you for having me. This has been really wonderful and a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share Podcetera. And be sure to follow and like the series wherever you enjoy podcasts. For Podcetera, I'm Renee Lego. And I'm Joelle Lodovich. Thanks for listening. See you next time.